This is um, quite a bit of text, but I decided to take on this whole passage and to round off for us this whole series on prayer. And this really is sort of part two of what I've entitled The Essence of True Prayer. The Essence of True Prayer. Namely, I want to focus on verses 5 down to the end there of verse 15 of what we read. And uh, the first thing that I want to point out, therefore, is two things, really. But number one, the fact that Jesus here helps us to prevent faulty patterns of prayer. And the very first thing that he reminds us of is preventing hypocritical prayer, or we could even say hypocritically motivated prayer. And it's sort of redundant or sort of repetitious of what he's already said in the earlier verses, verses 1 through 4. But verse 5 and 6 sort of repeats the same notion. So let's read this again for us. He says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they might be seen of men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, again, this passage here, these verses follow the same basic pattern that we saw in verses 1 through 5. There are external shows of religion, external shows of spirituality, and that for the sake of public notice. And so what he has in mind here is doing your spiritual deeds in front of others for the purpose of being seen. And just like the same pattern already showed us, this results in a loss of reward. There is a loss of heavenly reward because of our craving for temporal reward. And so once again, the deadly motivation behind all of this is hypocrisy. But not just hypocrisy, but hypocrisy that is rooted in the desire to be seen and to be praised by men. It's in every one of us. We all have it. To some degree, we all love the, the applause. We all love the pat on the back. We all love to be praised by others. Well, I learned early on in the ministry, I learned to be very careful with the praise of men. Pastor, that was the best sermon I have ever heard you ever preach. And when people say that, in my mind, secretly, I have a sentence that follows after that. It says, if you live by the praise, you die by the praise. So don't be too impressed when people are impressed with you knowing that in a flicker, in a moment of time, the same people that praise you can be the same people that speak against you, the same people that betray you, that backstab you, the same people that turn their back on you. I mean, look at what happened to Jesus. In a moment's time, the crowd who was at one moment shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. Praise the Lord. In the next instant, they're crying out, crucify him crucify him the same crowd is crying out crucify him let his blood be upon us and upon our children you see this is this is why putting your stock putting your putting your uh, your hope in the praise of others is a faulty foundation and it is faulty spirituality and we should try to 
kill it whenever it arises in our own hearts. This desire to be praised by others, this motivation to do the things that we do so that other people will take notice of us and hopefully they will notice how spiritual that we are and give us praise. This was what the whole pharisaical system was built upon. It was built upon the praise of others. The Pharisees would go into the streets. They would strap their arms with their heads with phylacteries. They would do their outward shows, their outward manifestations of religion in hopes that the crowds would just adopt this sort of worldview that says they are the spiritual ones. They are the ones to be praised. You see this today all over the world. During Easter, you have people that celebrate all over the third world. They do these extreme, have you seen this? They do this extreme expression of outward religion. Many of them uh, go so far as to flog themselves as they try to, they try to repeat the whole Calvary scene. Some of them even go so far, I was watching a documentary where these men were, went so far as to literally crucify themselves in, the, in order to show people how devoted they were to Christ, they went through a re-crucifixion act where they literally nailed uh, nails through their hands and bled all over the place and try to recreate that scene. That is certainly not what God calls us to do. God does not call us to parade around our spirituality. Everything about what God is saying here has to do with the inner man. And that is because, as scripture tells us, that is where God sees. God sees us in truth. And so David prays, God, let me have truth in the inward parts where no one sees. The reality that God is a God who tests the hearts. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 3 says that God tests the hearts of men. So it does in Jeremiah 17, 10. God is the one who sees that aspect of us that no one can see. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school with the spirituality of God and the communicable attribute of that spirituality and that invisibility that we all share. Well, God who is spirit sees our spirits and he sees our mind and he sees our hearts and he tests our hearts. The psalmist declares in Psalm 26 verse 2 examine me O Lord and try me test my mind and my heart is that our prayer is that that should be our prayer that should be our prayer all the time and when we go into prayer that should be the attitude that we take with us Lord as I lay myself here before you in prayer the very first thing that we ought to do is ask, ask God test my mind and test my heart examine me Oh Lord, Psalm 125 verse 4 says that God does good to those that are upright in heart. Does that remind you of anything? Jesus earlier in Matthew 5 said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The beatific vision is reserved for those who are of a pure heart, who are a good heart. That good heart can only be achieved through salvation, can only be achieved through regeneration. It is not that as regenerate people, some of you have good hearts and some of you don't. Some of you will see God and some of you won't. No, thanks be to God, because of regeneration, we will all see God because we all have a pure heart in the sense that our heart has been renewed. So not only, therefore, is he looking to prevent hypocritical prayer, but he's also looking to prevent performance-driven prayer. Look at verse 7 and 8. 
It says, and when you pray or when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing what he's saying here is, look, don't use meaningless chants and mantras in prayer. Don't think that because you repeat a certain phrase that God will listen to your prayer more than the other person or more than he heard your other prayers so that if you just get the right combination of words together, maybe you can twist God's arm and, you know, it's almost like the proverbial genie in the bottle. Maybe if you can get God to answer your prayers, if you come up with a certain incantation, God will then respond in like. No, God is not a genie in a bottle. God is not... Is God cannot be manipulated in prayer through our many words. It's also very freeing, isn't it? That we don't have to come up with some certain formula of how to pray. It's very freeing to me to know that I don't have to come up with special words in my prayers. That God doesn't answer prayer based on how eloquent you are in prayer. You know, so many people struggle in prayer because they say, I can't pray like other people. Well, guess what? You're, I got good news for you. Uh, God doesn't want you to pray like other people. God wants you to pray like you pray. And hopefully, yes, you know, through the help of the church and preaching and teaching, your prayers will become sanctified and refined and theologically more accurate and, and all of the things that we've been talking about. But God wants primitive prayers. That is to say, God wants prayers that are pure, authentic, real that are not dressed up with religious jargon and religious things. Um, I remember hearing um, some brothers pray in King James. We went from talking normal talk, hey, how are you doing, man? Hey, doing good, bro. And then praying, thou father who thou in heaven, hallowed be thy name, as if that's the way they really talk. I don't know that God wants you to talk to him in Elizabethan English. I think God just wants you to talk like you normally talk. It's King James Elizabethan English is not more sanctified than modern English, folks. I would say it's, it's very dangerous for us to do that even in the first place because we may be inauthentic in doing that. We may think that, oh, if I pray this way, this is more reverent than just talking to God normally. Oh, I'm all for reverence in prayer, brothers and sisters. We should be utterly reverent in our prayer, but we should not be pretentious in our prayers either. We need to realize we're living in the 21st century. We are not the Puritans of the 16th and 17th century. We don't pray like they prayed. Oh, there's nothing wrong with with reading a Puritan prayer or something like that in prayer. There's nothing wrong with those types of expressions. But when it comes time for you to commune with God in the secret place where no one sees, which means in truth, in truth, and who you are, I don't know. Who are you? John, do you walk around talking in Elizabethan English? I don't think so. We don't think you're weird. So we don't want God to think you're weird, so just talk normally, right? I pick on John because he can take it. You know, he just... He's okay with me using him as an a sermon example. <laughs> but all to say that God, above everything, wants us to be authentic. Notice what his analogy is here. Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles. Now, as the Gentiles means as the pagans do. Because at this time, Gentiles stood for paganism, right? Very interesting. Theologically, if you follow the progression of redemptive 
theology and redemptive history, even in the Bible, by the time you get to the epistles, you get to Galatians, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, excuse me, the Jews are equivocated with Gentiles, which is amazing. So now in the mind of the apostle Paul, the world of the profane, the world of the ungodly, the world of those who are outside of the covenant blessings of God is now applicable to Jews who have not repented and followed Christ. Amazing. But here, at this period of time, Jesus is saying, don't pray like the pagans pray. Don't pray like the, those who worship Baal. Don't pray like those that worship Artemis. Don't pray like those that worship any of the Greek gods of Greek mythology and Greek religion. Pray with pure, authentic prayers. Notice his attribute. It is a meaningless repetition. God does not give any meaning to that type of prayer. You can pray until you're blue in the face and millions, dare I say, billions of Muslims do every day. They bow down, they do their pillars, they, they, do, their, they, do, their, uh, they do their prayers five times a day if they're practicing Muslims and they, fo- they face Mecca and they bow down and they pray they, they pray to Allah in the direction of Mecca and thinking that through the repetition of the same prayers every day, God will hopefully in the end be appeased. It's very pagan what they're doing. Four million Muslims go on Hajj every year to Mecca and, and all bow in unison, in unison towards the sacred stone in the Kaaba in Mecca there in Saudi Arabia and four million Muslims simultaneously prayer, pray meaningless prayers. Isn't that amazing? Futile prayers. The same can be said for Hinduism and the multitude of millions of gods that they pray to and repeat meaningless chants, meaningless mantras to deities that cannot hear. I remember a missionary telling a story about going to India and visiting there with a tribe. A woman had just thrown her infant into the river to sacrifice that infant to the crocodile god whom she worshipped. Meaningless spirituality. Vain, total vain religion, and it's everywhere. It is in the recesses of India in Hinduism. And it is right here in American cultural Christianity, and you see it all over mainstream media. People giving lip service to the God of America. People giving lip service to the God upstairs and then living completely contrary to the God of Scripture. I mean, this type of hypocrisy is everywhere. And so for you and I, let us never slip into that. Let us never slip into meaningless words in prayer, meaningless repetition in prayer. Now look, this goes together with the, 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 the fact that Jesus, not only, is he, not only is he preventing faulty patterns of prayer, but secondly, he is also providing a perfect model of prayer. And he begins with a caveat. Notice what he says in verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be your name. What's the caveat? I'll tell you what the caveat is. The caveat is the qualifier. Pray in this way. Jesus did not say pray this. Repeat these words when you pray so that each one of us has to repeat 
uh, the Lord's Prayer, as it's called, the Lord's Prayer every time we pray, thinking that, well, if we repeat this passage of Scripture before we pray, then God will hear me more, or this is more godly, or this is more acceptable in God's eyes. No, Jesus makes it very clear that these instructions are simply a pattern, a form. This is, this is a prescription. This is not to be followed verbatim. We don't need to pray these exact words. We are to pray this exact way, this exact way. This is the model that he gives us, that he gives to us. And so we're not called here to enter into a prayer circle and begin to read the Lord's Prayer as if that's the way we must start our prayers. With that said, I think you guys are mature enough, at least I speak for the members of our church, you're mature enough to know that we don't do that. And um, I know that you don't do that. You don't think like, oh, I have to read this passage of Scripture in order for it to be real, accepted, acceptable prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading this prayer. And I've heard many people read this prayer as they enter a prayer circle. But you understand what Jesus is getting at here. He is getting at the fact that what he wants for us is to follow the principles of this prayer and not follow the literalness of this prayer when we pray. Now, he begins this whole prayer first with our address. And so this is the way that it's going to go. Our address in prayer is first. So the first thing that we do is we acknowledge who we're speaking to. And by the way, this verse, verse 9, and the address, the way the address works, it strikes the perfect balance between reverence and relationship, between intimacy and inadequacy in our prayer. God is our Father. That means that we have all the privilege and all the right and all the authority to commune with God as our Father who loves us and hears us. We have total access to the Father through Jesus Christ. Conversely, the fact that God is in heaven and that he is hallowed, his name is to be hallowed, also stresses our inadequacy, or if you would, our total unworthiness to be and to appear before the throne of so holy a God. So we acknowledge that when we pray. God, we thank you that you are our Father and that you hear our prayers and simultaneously we acknowledge, oh God, I am so unworthy to be praying to you. You see the the beautiful balance that he strikes here. And notice too, and this is a big one for me, I've been pointing this out a lot, then I've been pointing the finger back at me. I point the finger a lot at you guys. It may have seemed that way. I do it in a good heart. Don't, I'm not, you know, coming at you. But I'm pointing, I'm looking at myself, examining myself, saying, look, because my, ne- my next point is this. Notice that Jesus pauses to contemplate and to confess the attributes of God. Hallowed be your name. That simply means the name of God is set apart. It is transcendent and majestic, and it is set apart in the sense that his name is unlike any other name. It literally means consecrate the name of God. You're not talking to your buddy in prayer. You're not talking to your just any old friend in prayer. You're not talking to, you know, uh, uh, to, it's, it's not like any other conversation you're going to have. There is an element there where we have to remind ourselves who it is that we're praying to. And so we do this by acknowledging God's attributes. 
that he is to be hallowed, that he is the holy God. Do we do that? Do we enter prayer? See the principle there? This is a principle. When we begin to pray, do we begin first and foremost by acknowledging, oh God, this is who you are. I think it's a real test of your sanctification. I think it's a real test of your maturity, of your communion with God to see can you actually ascribe greatness to the Lord or do you just want to rush in and just rattle off a list of requests real quick to God? Where is the communion? Where's the fellowship? I think God takes great delight in prayers like the one we read at Jeremiah. God of heaven and earth, you have done this and you have done that and this is who you are and you are sovereign and you are great and holy and majestic is your name. And oh, by the way, what was I about to pray for? Because <laughs> you get so caught up in the grandeur of God that you, it almost eclipses your need of God. They're your needs that you're about to give to God. But he doesn't leave it there. Don't worry, it will get to that. But notice the second thing. Not only do we need to take note of our address in prayer, but also our orientation. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is when we stop to acknowledge God, right? Prayer is the time that we take to put everything on hold for a moment. Sure, there's things to do. There are errands to be ran. There's, there's chores around the house to be done. There's cleaning to be done. There's cooking to be done. There are things to be done with the kids, with the home, with the family, at work. But when we pray, what we're saying is we are putting everything on hold to acknowledge God, to commune with God. And on top of that, not only is it a time for us to, talk, to stop, not only is it quiet time to get with the Lord, not only is it time to reflect and to think and to examine, but it's also a time to reorient our lives. When we pray, we should, it is a time of self-examination. What is my life's ambitions all about? Is it about me? Is it about my personal ambition, my personal goals, what I want to accomplish in this life? Or is it that my life get into conformity with the will of God. What a glorious thing God has done for us here. Jesus is giving us a great clue as to how we can, we can increase in our sanctification big time because if you are mature enough to say, God, I want my life to be oriented around your will, your purpose, your plan, your kingdom, all of that, it will change the way you live your life. This is, why, this is what Jesus loved in other people. What did he say in Matthew 12, 48? Jesus, your, your family's outside waiting to talk to your mother, your sister, your brothers. What does Jesus say? Who is my mother, my brother, my sister? Who, who are my family members? Those that do the will of God. So, Prayer, according to Christ, is the time where we reorient our lives around the supremacy and the priority of the kingdom of God. And so we ask ourselves, is the kingdom of God a priority in my life? Am I prioritizing in prayer? God, I want your kingdom to come. Which is just synonymous in the sense of saying you want God's will to be done, his redemptive work to be done. You want God's purposes to be accomplished on earth. 
leading up and ultimately being fulfilled in the consummation of all things. But it is a call. It is, it is an expressed desire of the believer that the world should conform itself. Oh, that the world would be conformed to the will of God. Isn't that our heart's ache? Oh, God, that our nation would conform more and more to your will. Oh, God, that the kingdoms of this world would conform more and more to your will and your word. In other words, it is asking for God's will to prevail on earth. And he says, on earth as it is in heaven. How is it in heaven? The will of God, the kingdom of God in heaven is fulfilled without mitigation, without delusion or deluded, be, being deluded. There is, no, uh, there is no retraction of the will of God. There is no watering down God's will. There's no compromise in the will of God. And that's what we're saying. God, may your will prevail uncompromisingly in this world, even as it is in heaven. Therefore, it is an eschatological prayer. You are praying eschatologically. You are praying for his kingdom to come. I would say that's the way that the world will be conformed to his will ultimately. So in one sense, it's almost the same thing as praying uh, what John prays in Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come, because then everything will be conformed to your will. So not just, not just talking about who we're addressing, not just orienting our lives correctly, but then expressing our needs. Notice that uh, verse 9 and 10, everything has had to do with God. Everything's been in a God-centered direction. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. But then the focus shifts in the prayer here. The focus shifts from your will to us, to we, our personal needs. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, so far as our needs go, we realize that God is to be asked for every little step of our lives. You know, focus on the words daily bread. That implies so many different things. Give us instead our daily bread. It, it implies the fact that God is the absolute source of the most basic resources of our life. Everything that we have comes from the hand of God. Do we forget that? Do we really believe the paycheck is to be credited with the lights being on in our house, with the refrigerator being full of food in our homes? Do we forget that were it not for God, his providence, his meticulous providence in our lives, we may not even have the ability to eat. We may not have the ability to work to put on the lights in our house. Remember, folks, remember, all things come from God. Let us not be forgetful. Hosea chapter 2, what was the, what was the indictment there? They forgot the Lord that it was him who gave them their crops. It was him. 
He gave them their gold, their silver, their flax. He gave them all of their sustenance and they forgot the Lord. And so this prayer is just a wonderful reminder. It gives us our daily bread. It also stresses man's absolute dependence for God for your daily needs. It also suggests that our prayers should also be content with God's goodness displayed in the most basic of provision. The most basic of provision. With food and clothing, we shall be content. It also assumes that we will pray to God daily to ask him for the things that we need. We don't want to become presumptuous. The Lord's Prayer here keeps us from being presumptuous and just assuming that tomorrow will be like today. That tomorrow you're going to have your job. That tomorrow you're going to have your paycheck. That tomorrow you're going to have benefits. That tomorrow you're going to have a you're going to have a life free of calamity, free of disease, free of sickness, free of the hospital bill that can put you in peril. We're desperate for God, folks, but we don't often recognize our desperation. We're desperate for God, but we often ask, act as if we're totally self-sufficient without God. And we really oftentimes wait until it's too late. We wait until everything has been done. Now, notice quickly, so far there have been four requests going up to verse 11. The fifth and sixth requests that are made here have everything to do with our personal sanctification. Jesus always and at all times, his teachings were always extremely practical and they always extended into the real world. That's a very hard thing for, for, for even for me as a pastor, as a preacher. It's very hard to take a theological truth. Jesus took a lot of theology, right? But he made it very practical. He says, that, you know, he's not just teaching the law. He's saying, now go and live this way right now. <laughs> this applies immediately to your circumstance. That is the trick of good teaching, how to bring it down into the applicable world, to the practical world. And he was always fleshing these things out. All of his teachings were always fleshed out in the practical lives of his people. So it's not enough to be forgiven of our debts, but also that we then live in light of that and go on to forgive others. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see that? And the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John, excuse me, very much keen on the, the style of teaching of Jesus, as was Peter. This is an interesting study if you want to do this study. Follow the ways that John mimics the teachings of Jesus and follow the way that Peter mimics the teachings of Jesus. They're very interesting, they're different, but they're both true to who Jesus was. They both taught very much like Christ. It's beautiful. I wish we had time to get into that. We don't. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Go there with me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. To see how all theologizing, all doctrine, all true spirituality has to have contact with the real world, with your real life, with your practical affairs, with everyone else around you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and who of us here 
would not say that, at least those of us who are in Christ. And hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. So he's echoing the command of Christ that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Where does that tradition come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, verse 37. This is where Jesus is put to the test. What is the greatest commandment? Right? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Amazing. So what else does prayer do? I'll tell you what else prayer does. And this is the principle, I think, that we should take away from it. Prayer causes us to focus on what is the faith all about? What is our religion all about? Trickle it down. Love God. Love neighbor. So it's time to get back down to basics with prayer, in prayer. God, bring me back to the things I know for certain. I need to be loving you, and I need to be loving other people. Don't you ever feel like prayer is a time where the fog can clear away? Prayer is a time, hopefully you've gone to prayer at those times where you just feel foggy, you're confused, things are happening, maybe there's sin, maybe there's complex issues going on in the home, in the marriage, in the finances, at church, whatever. And then we go to God in prayer where he can clear away the clutter, clear away the fog, make things clear. This is who I'm supposed to be. Prayer is a good time for us to be reminded of that. So, it has everything to do with our sanctification in the first place, having to do with our forgiveness. He'll return to that in a moment. But then he moves on to the concept of temptation. He says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The request is not meant to conjure up the, 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 the thorny doctrine of theodicy. What is theodicy? The, doc, the doctrine that focuses on the relationship of God and evil. How God, a good, good, holy God, how it's possible for him to allow evil. But, we'll get to that in a minute, but it is meant rather to show us how desperate we ought to be and how gripped with fear we ought to be of falling in to temptation. Prayer is the time where we, where we go and we keep short accounts with God. God, help me today. As I ask for my daily bread, let me ask for my daily sanctification while I'm at it. Help me this day, this moment, every day. Help me, Lord, because it is possible and I have a propensity to fall into temptation every day. This is why the author of Hebrews says, remind one another every day, every day while it's still called today, all the more as you see the day approaching, Stimulate one another daily for love and good works. Why? Because in one day, you can bring total destruction to your life and to your soul. Jonathan Edwards says, in one thought, a man can eternally undo himself. I don't know if I believe this Christian thing anymore. I don't know if I can keep going. I, I, I quit. I, I, I've had it. I 
I've decided to leave my, my, my family. I've decided to leave my wife. I've decided to go back to the world. And sure, I think it was someone reminded me, that just might not happen overnight. But once that one decision is made, it could lead to in irreparable peril. It could lead to the destruction of your soul. So we are every day on the precipice of total destruction of our spiritual lives. I mean, we have to feel the weight of that threat. Just read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is all about that. Be careful, brothers, that there is not in you creeping up an evil heart of unbelief. Secretly, no one knows that you're struggling, that you're being tempted with apostasy. No one knows that you're struggling with unbelief. No one knows that you're struggling with believing the Bible or not. Maybe you're struggling with something in the Bible. Maybe you're doubting the Genesis flood. Maybe you're doubting miracles. Maybe you're doubting resurrection. Maybe you're doubting the virgin birth. I tell you what, when Jesus says how difficult it is for people to enter the kingdom of God, I'm beginning to think of that verse not having to do with regeneration, but having to do with perseverance. How difficult it is through many trials and many tribulations and many tests and many temptations, we must enter the kingdom of God. God means to protect us, though. And this is the good news, that for the believer, if you go to James chapter 1, we are assured God does not tempt anyone. So whatever our theology is, it cannot ever be that God is himself the author of evil. I would never say it that way. Some theologians have. I would never say it just like that. It's too unqualified. It is too irresponsible. But God has good purposes even for the evil that he ordains. And the greatest example of that, my dear friends, is the cross of Jesus Christ. The greatest evil that has ever transpired on planet Earth is not child molestation. It is not the Holocaust. It is not rape. It is not murder. It is the crucifixion and murder of the holy, sinless Son of God who was slaughtered for nothing that he did, who was slaughtered like a lamb led to the slaughter, who was butchered, beaten beyond recognition for our sin. The, the, the just for the unjust. That is the greatest, most abominable thing that has ever happened on the face of this earth. And it was all predestined by God. The cross is the way back to sanity. When you get to the place where you struggle with your sanctification and how is God involved in this and how can God allow that? If you don't get back to sanity through the cross, dare I say, you will never get back. It is the cross that makes all of these things make sense to us. And so we are crying out, God, deliver us from evil. Also notice then, there's also a doxology attached to this text. For it says, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And if you have an NASB or an ESV or NIV or something like that, you'll probably have this in brackets because what the translators are trying to tell you is that this, uh, this phrase is probably not original. 
meaning it's probably not found in the original manuscripts. The reason for that is because it doesn't appear in the oldest and best manuscripts that we have. It doesn't appear in Saniaticus, Vaticanus, Biza, and many other of the finest manuscripts that we have that have a, a widespread geography and a widespread uh, 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 um, uh, chronology. Uh, they're not found there. And then when they are found, it's found in different spots, and it varies. And so most have... Uh, most uh, textual scholars today have suggested that this is not an original to Matthew. It was probably added, and that's why the disappearance of that verse, the disappearance of that phrase, can be accounted for later in the manuscript tradition. Because, as textual critics do, they reason what is more likely, that this is added to the Bible or taken away? Who would take anything out of the Bible if it's there? Who would cross out a verse? So it's more likely that the church had this early doxology. It's, there's no doubt that it, it was in existence in the early church. It's quoted in the Didache, and that's very early on in the church, second century. So there's no doubt that this phrase was early, uh, a Christ, uh, early Christological doxology, if you would. It's a, it's, a, it's a doxology that belonged to the early church. And if this would have been recited as early as the early church would have recited it, if you were a Jew, you would have heard an echo to 1 Chronicles 29. Listen to 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. You exalt yourself as head over all. So probably that doxological statement comes from this verse itself. Let me get lastly to this. I know some of you apologetical heads would want to focus on textual criticism the whole time, but I can't do that. I got to keep going, okay? Our obligation in prayer, our obligation in prayer. So not just do we have Jesus telling us how to rightly address God, not just telling us how to express our needs to God, but there, there's also an obligation, and it is this addendum that's brought in. If you would, it's like a postscript at the end of the prayer in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others of their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Isn't that amazing? It is an obligation to real holiness in other words it is not just words in prayer it's words that are intent on action don't pray where you're not ready to do in other words we have to be willing to follow through with our prayer lives action not just words also all of our words in our prayers, therefore, are preparatory words. When we pray, we are preparing. We are gearing up to do the things that we are praying that we will do. Now, let's look exegetically at this for a moment. Because if you look at the whole structure of the passage, verses 1 through 15, what this does is it goes back to verse 1 and the pattern that is found there where certain conditions are met with certain consequences. In other words, the practice of, of righteousness outwardly is met with the consequence of forfeiting the, the heavenly reward. Verse 1, 
And also, the public display of giving is also met with the consequence of forfeiting reward in verse 4. The public hypocritical prayers of the Pharisees are also met with the loss of reward and the threat there for believers, for his disciples, the potential threat of the loss of reward. Likewise, the promise of genuine piety is met with the result of heavenly reward. So Jesus returns to that basic pattern here. That also means that verse 13 is something of a parenthetical statement, whereas verse 14 and 15 sort of resume that, that same sequence. But look at the symmetry here. The symmetry is very simple. Human forgiveness results in divine forgiveness. But the lack of human forgiveness results in the lack of divine forgiveness. This is a strong verse. It cannot be any more black and white than this. It cannot be stated any more explicitly. If you don't forgive people, you will not be forgiven. Strong, strong words coming from Jesus, which means this. In our prayer, we're praying things that are deadly serious. This is not just abstract theory. We are praying things that are real and that will, will have real significant application to our lives and to our souls. This is a call also to total humility. This is a way that in prayer we can remind ourselves that what we're doing in prayer is totally abasing ourselves before God. We are lowering ourselves. We are acknowledging ourselves as the worms that we are in the presence of a holy God. God, I have no rights, is what we're saying in prayer. Who am I to harbor unforgiveness against anyone when you have forgiven me? Where God, who is capable of reproach, does not reproach us. God, who alone is capable of holding things against us. He does not hold it against us, those of us who are forgiven of God, but he forgives us, and the lesson is very simple. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That is amazing. That is terrifying. They say, God, there is no place for this. Listen what Calvin says. Unless God pardons us every day many sins, many sins, we know that we are ruined in innumerable ways. And on no other condition does he admit us to pardon, but that we pardon our brethren, whatever offenses they have committed against us. Those who refuse to forget the injuries which have been done to them devote themselves willingly and deliberately to destruction. Knowingly and knowingly, they prevent God from forgiving them. That's amazing, isn't it? You prevent God from forgiving you if you don't forgive others? There's the power of unforgiveness right there. It can prohibit God from forgiving you. The truth is, is that there's no excuse for unforgiveness in God's people. The truth is, is that as blood-bought saints of God, there is no excuse whatsoever for us to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. There is no place for grudges in the church. There is no place for bitterness or resentment. Hebrews says that a root of bitterness can defile the corporate unity of the church. That's why Paul tells two women in the church, uh, Eodica and Syntyche, 
And in Philippians chapter four, he admonishes them. Here's Paul, a busy missionary in prison. I'm sure he's got a lot of things to worry about. And one dispute with two ladies in the church is probably not at the top of his list. I mean, he might, you know, who knows what's going to happen to him in a Roman prison. Even if he was under house arrest, things can take a turn for the worse just like that. But Paul sees the danger of the division between two people in the church as so disastrous for the unity of the church that he has to take time in his letter to the Philippians to be sure to exhort the church for unity and to exhort the pastors to say, shepherds, make sure that you work with these ladies to figure this out, to get it settled because it can destroy the unity of this church. And um, I'm not happy to say that I've seen that happen time and time again. How many counseling sessions I've had to sit in to settle some dispute on Facebook. Don't get me going on my pastoral pet peeves right now because Facebook is at the top of the list. It is a dangerous tool and... Um, it can be used for so much good or so much evil. It can be used responsibly or it can be used very immaturely. And sadly, sadly, I have seen otherwise mature brethren do such immature things on Facebook. You know, I'll give you one example, okay? See, I told you, you get me started on this, it's over. I mean, I've seen brothers posting pictures of themselves on Facebook, drinking a beer and smoking a pipe in the name of, this is what reformed guys do. They drink ale, smoke cigars like Spurgeon. Okay, when Paul said, if I eat meat and it causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. I don't think what Paul meant was, except I'll post it on Facebook for everyone to see. I don't think what that, that's what that means. Drinking beer stumbles certain people. Therefore, I'm just going to post it on Facebook and make everybody see me drinking my Christian beer. I call it the Christian beer because, it's, you know, you're lauded one, right? I mean, it's always, you always hear that excuse. Oh, can't I have a glass of wine? <laughs> so anyway, you can have your Christian beer. Sure. I'd be the first to stand up for your liberty to say you can drink beer. Uh, not, not all you want. But you can drink beer. <laughs> you can even smoke a cigar like Spurgeon. But if you're causing people to stumble, you have defeated the whole purpose for which God gave you that liberty in the first place. And so, this is why it's so important not to allow things to fester, either on an individual level, on a familial level, We've all got problems. Let's just, let's own up to it. We've got issues in our families. We've got things that people have done to us. We've done things to other people. I have a family member will not forgive me. Will not forgive me for something that I did not do. You know how terrible that feels? I've sought his forgiveness. I've gone to them face to face. I've approached them face to face. I've gone, I've taken someone with me to try to repair the problem. They will not forgive. And they still want to profess Christ. And I fear, oh God, let not this passage be fulfilled in this family member of mine. How terrible would that be? Terrible. So 
This is Jesus' instructions for us in prayer. Let's pray.